Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Dan, and this is our Tuesday Hey Mary Kay edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Today, I'm going to throw some questions at Mary Kay Cabot, and she's going to give me some answers. We talk about the Super Bowl and how the Browns might have fared in this game if they've been able to get to it. Then we talk a little bit about David Njoku, what the Browns should do with their tight end after he went on the Jim Rome show and didn't exactly commit to wanting to be a Cleveland Brown. And lastly, we talk about Richard Sherman and whether the Browns should pursue the veteran cornerback. Now make sure you're subscribed to Football Insider. Go to cleveland.com slash Browns. Click on the blue banner at the top of the page to get all the information on that and get signed up. And now here's our Tuesday Hey Mary Kay edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. Away we go on our Hey Mary Kay edition of the Orange or Brown Talk podcast. Mary Kay Cabot, of course, joining me. Let's just start here. What did you think of the Super Bowl last night? I was so disappointed. I mean, it was just such a bummer. I had such high expectations for that game. I actually, uh, on our picks pod, picked the Chiefs to win the game. I really thought it would sort of be, you know, new guard versus old guard. I underestimated Tom Brady again, which I have learned over the years that you just can't do that. He is just such a fighter, and he's not ready to be done yet. As, a, as an entire team, it was they were phenomenal. Just that defense, Todd Bowles' defense, coupled with Tom Brady, it was just it was a sight to behold, uh, and it was just disappointing to see the Chiefs play like that. Yeah, underestimated the Chiefs' defense on my end, for sure. Not the Chiefs' defense, the Bucks' defense on my end, and also just kind of how hard it is to repeat. It hasn't happened since Tom Brady did it back at the early part of the century. So it's been a long time, you know, and then look, credit to Todd Bowles, credit to Byron Leftwich, and of course, Tom Brady. That was a a great game, which brings us to our first question here on the Hey Mary Kay podcast. Could the Browns have won that Super Bowl if they got that far? You know what, Dan, It, it really is an interesting question to ponder. And I'm sure that you thought about it while you were watching the game, right? You were probably sitting there thinking, you know, could they have done more against this very, very aggressive Bucks defense than the Chiefs were able to do? And for one reason, there's, there's one reason why I think they may have fared better. And that is because the Kansas City Chiefs were, out, were down their two starting tackles. And an offensive line is just so vitally important. And they just attacked it. I mean, they just attacked those guys from that standpoint 
And it was a great game plan on the part of Todd Bowles. But I, I don't think they would have been able to do the same thing against Jack Conklin and Jedrick Wills and the Browns offensive line. I would like to think uh, that they would have been able to run the ball and that they would have been able to, you know, to pass protect better than what the Chiefs were able to do. I mean, it was it was really something. I mean, you, you cannot say enough about what the Browns did to build their offensive line this season and what an impact it had on their season. Yeah, the thing that I think would have made a, a difference is, you know, Todd Bowles didn't really blitz on Sunday night. There are, I forget what the percentage I saw was, but it was something like 10% he blitzed. It was attack with four and they were effective and then cover seven. And that's the formula for beating a lot of really good quarterbacks. So if they could do that, then that defense would have shut down the Browns offense for sure. But I don't think they could do that against this offensive line. They probably would have had to have sent more. That being said, I don't think the Browns would have won that game. I think that defense, I think that Tampa defense is too good. Those safes, their safeties were healthy. They played well. And frankly, I don't think the Browns could have slowed Tom Brady and the Tampa running game. I don't think they could have covered Mike Evans and Chris Godwin and Rob Gronkowski and all those guys. I just don't see a formula out there for how the Browns could have won this game defensively and offensively. Maybe they could have kept up. It might've looked a little more like the Tampa green Bay game, but I didn't watch that game and think, Oh yeah, the Browns could beat this Bucks team. No, I did not feel that way at all. I do. I did think that, that their tackles would hold up better and that they would have a, a better time in pass pro, but I didn't feel that they would have won the game. I really didn't feel that way at all because as you mentioned, we kind of underestimated the Bucks defense and Todd Bowles just had those guys playing lights out. And as you mentioned, they, they were phenomenal. Their defensive backs played so incredibly well that game. And they played a really disciplined football game too. Tom Brady, Gronk, Antonio Brown. I mean, I, I think it would have been incredibly hard for the Browns defense to, uh, you know, to slow those guys down. And Tom Brady was on a mission. I mean, this was his prove it game. This was his game to say, you know what? I, I didn't need Bill Belichick to win a Super Bowl. I can do it out here on my own. And I think it was a prove it game for Bruce Arians too. I think Bruce Arians, you know, the Browns didn't even give him uh, interviews all those times he wanted to interview for the Browns job. Uh, he's 68 years old. Everybody thinks he's washed up. Think about Bruce Arians plus Tom Brady, that's over, you know, they're over a hundred some years old together, right? <laughs> and nobody really gave them, nobody gave them a chance against Andy Reid and against Patrick Mahomes. But let me know what you think about this too, Dan. I, I do think that the Chiefs, I mean, they looked completely lost and rattled. I just have to wonder if the events of what happened with Britt Reid just didn't kind of cast a pall over the entire organization. I know they were all worried uh, about the uh, darling little five-year-old girl who is, is fighting for her life. And I, I just think that it would be really hard to get ready for a football game uh, with what happened to them. I think so too. And honestly, I just think with Tampa, this kind of goes back to the whole like repeat thing. With Tampa, this was the game of, the game of their lives, right? Tom Brady, we always know he's going to show up for the Super Bowl and compete. And it's going to be, you know, there's no letting up with him. But I think for a lot of these guys, this was their opportunity they've been waiting for. And, and we've, we saw it throughout the postseason. We saw it with the Browns and the Steelers, 
sometimes a team just comes out and I don't want to say it means more to them, but it kind of does mean more to them. And you can sort of just see it in the body language. And for the Chiefs, we saw it all season long. They kind of just messed around. They messed around and won 14 games and got to the Super Bowl. But you didn't see that desperation with the Chiefs. So I, I think it's, look, what happened, you can't help but have it affect you. And then just on top of that, it just seemed like the Buccaneers were just more, I, I I'm, guess I'm looking for the word, but they were just kind of more desperate. I don't know if that's the right word, but they were the team that really kind of went into this game and, and said, we're going to win this game. And the Chiefs just weren't ever able to flip that switch. Yeah, they had the emotional edge. There's no question about it. I was reading a few things this morning where Todd Bowles was talking about how his defense, uh, I think maybe the defensive backs in particular, were angry. They were angry about the fact that everyone wrote them off. No one gave them a chance. Everyone was picking the Chiefs to win this game. You know, talking about Patrick Mahomes and Tyreek and and Travis Kelsey and and all those guys. And, And they felt disrespected. And the emotional aspect of this game is huge. It is absolutely huge. Huge. As you mentioned, the Browns went into Pittsburgh and they had the emotional edge. Now, sometimes it's even, and then you're just going to have football, right? It's just going to be who plays better football on this particular day. But if you can find a team that wants it more, needs it more, has more of a sense of urgency, then they're going to, if they're fairly evenly matched, that team is going to go out and take and win that game. And also Tom Brady kept texting and texting his teammates and saying, we're going to win it. We're going to win it. We're going to win it. Think of all the guys that weren't even on that team at the, at the very beginning or, you know, right from the start. I mean, there were guys that were adding Antonio Brown, Leonard Fournette. They, they just, it was a team full of guys with something to prove, whether it was their age or their checkered past or whether or not they were washed up or whether or not they were too old. And they just had a chip on their shoulder going into that game. They took it to them. Like you said, it reminded me in some ways of the way the Browns marched into Pittsburgh and just took it to the Steelers. They were going to win that game and nothing was going to stop them. Yeah. So there we go. Tom Brady gets number seven. Unbelievable. (laughs) I don't, I don't know if we're ever going to see another quarterback win seven Super Bowls. And the other aspect of this, Dan, is in order to get there, do we think that the Browns would have been able to beat the Bills on the way there? So in addition to winning the Super Bowl, if they could have gotten past the Chiefs, do we think that they could have gotten there? And that's a tough one to answer, isn't it? That's a really tough one to answer because I think they would have had a chance to beat the Bills. I think yeah, they- I do too. Right. I think they would have had a chance. Now, when I watched that game yesterday, I didn't think that, again, I, I didn't come away from the Super Bowl thinking, oh, geez, the Browns would have just killed these guys. <laughs> I didn't feel that way at all. But I think that they would have that they're sort of evenly matched with the Bills. I think it would have been a heck of a game. It would have been on the road. There would have been Bills fans in the stands uh, and it would have been very, very tough. But. I I think they at least would have had a a decent chance to beat them and to get there. I, you know, the only issue is again, the the thing that made the Bucks so effective was that ability to rush with four, but the Browns were just at a point where no matter who they played, they had to come up with ways to create pressure because it was kind of miles Garrett and then everybody else. Right. I mean, even in the, even the chiefs, if we're sitting here drafting 
pass rushers in a Browns Chiefs matchup. Of course, Miles is going to go number one, but then you might take, you know, Chris Jones and Frank Clark two and three. So the Browns just with Olivier Vernon out, their pass rush was just sort of it wasn't there. You're counting on guys like Porter Gustin and Adrian Claiborne and and all of that. I think we might get to the pass rush a little later in this podcast, actually, as we talk about one of these questions. So let's move on to our second question here. Let's make this, let's flip here to be completely Brown centric. And we're going to talk some David Njoku. You put a post up about it. He went on the Jim Rome show last week and basically was non-committal when he was asked about if he saw himself as a Cleveland Brown. He said that he wasn't as thrilled with his role, which I think we all kind of got the sense of. And, you know, of course, you're the one that reported on the trade request in the middle of the season. So we all kind of got the sense that maybe he wasn't real happy with his new role in this offense. And now that's only kind of reinforced by what happened when he went on the Jim Rome show and didn't commit to being a member of the Cleveland Browns. So how do you think this plays out? Should the Browns trade him? Will he ask for another trade officially? Should they just not? I mean, they can release him. That that fifth-year option is not guaranteed. They have a lot of options here. So how do you think this plays out? Yeah, it's interesting. And we didn't get a chance to really talk to David Njoku very much. Uh, You remember, of course, that uh, when I wrote right before the trade deadline that he wanted to be traded again. And if you recall, he tweeted something out. And I can't remember if he – he might have used my name. He said – I do remember, I don't remember the tweet, tweet word for word, but he said, I didn't tell Mary Kay I want yeah. to trade it. It was something like that. But it right. was also very much like, right. yeah, maybe you didn't, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> right. And, and, and I took a little bit of grief for that, okay? Because it, it sort of made it seem like he might have been saying, I didn't say I wanted to be traded or I don't want to be traded, but that wasn't the case. And so I responded to that tweet and I said, That is exactly right. He did not tell me that. He didn't tell me that, but someone who knew what he wanted did tell me that, and it was a very reliable source. So, you know, I wouldn't have written it unless I knew that it was true. And he basically kind of confirmed some of that, don't you think? When he he talked to Jim Rome, he basically said, you know, it was up and down. I, I tried to put my head down. I tried to, I didn't want to ruin the season for everyone else. So I just tried to go out there and do the best I could. I did my job. But when you think about it, Dan, he only had 19 receptions for 213 yards and two touchdowns. That 19 receptions ranked seventh on the team behind Odell Beckham Jr., who was done after week seven with a torn ACL. So here he is catching fewer passes than Odell Beckham Jr., who missed the last, whatever, nine games of the season. Truthfully, you know, I can kind of see why he would be upset about that because he wasn't number one pick, picked him in the first round. They traded up to get him at number 29 overall in 2017. And you would expect more than 19 catches from a first round tight end. I mean, you just would. They also picked up his fifth year option for next year. That fifth year option is worth $6.013 million. The thing about that fifth year option, however, is that it's not guaranteed yet. That doesn't start happening upon exercising it until this class of 2018 coming up for their options by May 3rd. But David's was the last class where 
when they exercise the option, it's only guaranteed for injury up until the first day of the league year on March 17th, which brings us to decision-making time. The Browns will have to make a decision by then. By March 17th, they need to figure out, are they going to keep him on the roster at $6.013 million for the year, which is a pretty good bargain for a tight end, a good starting tight end, a really good bargain for a starter, or do they trade him or do they let him go? Now, I think my feeling on it would be, and I don't think the Browns want to do this, but if he absolutely doesn't want to be here and he's not on board and he's not one of those guys that is, you know, happy and all in and willing to do anything that it takes like he did do last year. If he's not willing to do that again, to come back and just be like, okay, if I get 20 catches, I get 20. Then I think I would try to move him and get something in return for him. If you can, that would be my first choice. If I couldn't do that, maybe I would, would keep him. I don't know if I would just release him outright. That is a valuable position in Kevin Stefanski's offense. And I thought towards the end of the season, I thought he started playing pretty well. And I thought he played really well in the Kansas city game. I would think about trading him or just trying to keep him and see if you can't come to some meeting of the minds. So here are the players who were targeted more than David Njoku this season. Njoku had 29 targets. Jarvis Landry was first with 101. Austin Hooper second with 70. Rashard Higgins third with 52. Kareem Hunt fourth with 51. Uh, Odell Beckham was had 43. And Harrison Bryant had 38. So he was not targeted a whole lot in the passing game. And he was kind of more of a blocker this year. You know, this is tough because if you're the Browns, you've done nothing but take up for the guy. I mean, there was really no, no real reason that you had to pick up that fifth year option, but they did it because they kind of bet on him improving. They liked the fit. They liked the tight end heavy offense. You got to have tight ends. Right. But there was really no true, like, football reason he hadn't shown you a whole lot necessarily to say oh yeah got to pick up that fifth year option and I do wonder what they would have done if it were fully guaranteed once you pick it up but I thought he played better this year I thought he had a nice season now I don't think he's a number one tight end necessarily but I thought he had a nice season and so for the Browns I'm kind of with you if he's going to absolutely just put his foot down and demand a trade and not show up to whatever he needs to show up to and, and he's willing to pay those fines or whatever and you kind of get to a Duke Johnson situation, then yeah, you, you've got to look at trading him. But at the same time, if he's going to show up like he did last year, even if he's not happy and put in the work and do what you ask him to do, I think you keep him around. Yeah, I think what needs to happen is, now he is represented again by Drew Rosenhaus, a very good, very high-powered agent. And what was happening last year with David is that he was sort of going back and forth between agents And so there was some upheaval that way in terms of what he wanted and how he was going to get it and all those kind of things. But now he's settled back down again, at least for now. He's with Drew Rosenhaus again. So what's going to have to happen is Andrew Barry is going to just have to have a conversation with Drew Rosenhaus. And they're just going to basically have to have a a heart-to-heart talk and figure out what both sides want and how they can either coexist or figure out a way to end this thing. If Drew Rosenhaus says to Andrew Barry, there's no, he just doesn't want to be here. We got to get this guy out of here. He just doesn't want to be around. 
you know, Drew is the kind of agent that would help facilitate a trade. I mean, he is so well connected, he would be able to find some kind of a, a new home, I would think, for David. Now, you're probably not going to get a lot for him, but you might not necessarily need a lot. I mean, it's basically a one-year rental for somebody at this point. Yeah. So, you know, once it gets to that point and somebody's going to only have him, you know, for a year, then, you know, you don't, you're not going to expect that much in return. Mm -hmm. So you might want to just cut your losses and take what you can get. The other way that conversation could go would be, hey, Andrew would say, David did, he put his head down, he went to work, he did everything we asked him to do. We were happy with him. We see a larger role for him next year. He proved some things to us. He had a good playoff game. He was the good soldier. And, you know, we, uh, you know, we would like to keep him at this $6.013 million. But based on the things he said to Jim Rome, every word of that sounded to me like, get me out. That's what that sounded like to me. Didn't, didn't it sound like that to you? Yeah. And the tone that we've seen set from players on social media and when we have gotten a chance to talk to guys is this like excitement. You know, there's this excitement to want to get back out there and run this thing back and be the team that gets to the Super Bowl next year. And he didn't go on Jim Rohn. Now, I didn't listen to the full interview, so maybe I missed it. So correct me if I'm wrong here. But he did go on there and he didn't say, yeah, I'm excited to go back to Cleveland and try and win a Super Bowl there. And, you know, he he hedged. He hesitated. So even if he said all that stuff elsewhere in the interview, it doesn't matter because he kind of hedged at that point at that moment in the interview and didn't say, you know, I'm willing to do whatever needs to be done. I don't know. You, you've got to make that decision with him. And, you know, the NFL is changing a little bit, right. When it comes to player empowerment. And I, I don't like to talk about loyalty because let's be honest, an NFL team can turn around and cut you tomorrow. So I, I don't hold it against players if they don't want to show loyalty the other way, because there's no loyalty in this league. But it also does force a team to have to make a decision on a guy. And the Browns might be at that point with Njoku. Yeah, it's, it's just a kind of a weird situation because I think they would want to keep him in a perfect world. I think, I mean, remember that Andrew Barry was on that staff in, in 2017 when Sashi Brown traded up and they drafted David Njoku. And, you know, you do kind of develop an affinity for guys that you drafted. I mean, it's just, it's just a thing. And Andrew was sort of the highest ranking football guy at that time, the guy who really knew the game and scouting and put the pair of eyes on a guy. And he saw things in David that he really liked. I still think, I think he still sees those things in David that he really likes. Remember David Njoku missed, I can't remember how many games it was last year, whether it was 10 or whatever. I think it was somewhere around there with his broken wrist so his development last year was completely delayed or set back. He didn't have an opportunity to take that jump to the next level. So then you get to this year, a year where you think maybe he could become more of a number one tight end for, for you or someone else. And he just didn't get that chance because they went out and they signed Austin Hooper, making him the, the highest paid tight end in the NFL for a short period of time. And then they drafted Harrison Bryant and the writing was basically on the wall. So he really, once again, didn't come back here and have a chance to show what he could do there in, in 2018, he was kind of 
showing glimpses of being an impact tight end. Inconsistent with the hands, but I think he got better at that, that this year. He wasn't dropping as many passes this year from a percentage standpoint. Again, didn't get very many targets, but his hands got better, I think. His blocking got better. I always think, I, I think he's way more of a threat in the red zone than he's had, had a chance to show. I think he should have way, he should have five, six touchdowns a season. I mean, that's, I think that's what he's capable of. So it's, it's kind of going to be a tough one. Like I said, my takeaway from the Jim Rome interview with him was that he doesn't want to be here because given that opportunity in that moment to say what you want, he couldn't say, yes, I want to be back with the Cleveland Browns. This is where I want to be. I'm under contract. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to make this. He didn't say any of that. So if you're going to, if you're going to be willing to go on a national radio show and talk like that, to me, that says you and your agent are going to try to sit down with Andrew Barry and find a way to get out. And look, you talk about the red zone and his ability in the red zone and you're right. But the reality is, you know, sorry, you're kind of the odd man out in a lot of those cases. You got Austin Hooper and Kareem Hunt and Nick Chubb and Richard Higgins and Jarvis Landry. And you've got, I mean, that's five guys right there that I just named that probably should be getting the ball ahead of you when you're in the red zone. So Harrison Bryant obviously had a, wasn't as good in the second half of the season, but he's a guy that's arrows kind of pointing up for him and is less expensive. He was a fourth round pick. So yeah, it's, um, it, it's a tough situation for Najoku, but again, he, he did a really good job this year of coming back and accepting that role, especially now that we know he wasn't really thrilled about it. He did a really good job of coming back, accepting the role and excelling at what they asked him to do. If he's not going to be happy in it, I, I can't blame him if he wants out. And then if the Browns don't want to deal with that again, I can't blame them if they want to go another direction. Yeah. Another thing to look at is do they think that Harrison Bryant will take yeah. a jump to the next level? Right. So if they think Harrison Bryant can really be that consistent, solid number two guy, not just from a receiving standpoint, but from a blocking standpoint, if they expect him to take that, whatever, 25% jump that, most GMs like to see a rookie take in their second year, then David is basically expendable because you're going to be in three tight ends a certain amount of the time, but probably not enough of the time if he's going to be the number three guy to pay him $6 million a year. You don't need a $6 million a year number three tight end, in my opinion. I just don't think that's the way you would need to allocate your resources. You know, if they like Harrison enough to move up into that role. Now, he wasn't in that role as much in the second half of the season and in the and in the playoff game. But maybe they feel that potential is there and that will dictate what they do. Yeah, it's funny how it flipped. I think we would say Harrison Bryant was probably the better player in the first half of the season. And then Najoku was the better player in, in the second half and in the playoffs. All right, Andrew Barry, this is why you get paid all that money to make these decisions. <laughs> good, yeah, it's good. It's a tough one. And the other thing, Dan, and I'm sure you, you get this too from, you know, not just from our subscribers, but regular email. For some reason, David Njoku moves the needle, right? Yeah. He, people are interested in David Njoku. It's funny because, I mean, Browns fans, we know how loyal they are and how they, you know, how they love their Browns, but there are certain guys that they latch onto 
and the Rashard Higgins and the David Njoku's of the world, they love those guys, right? And we hear a lot about those guys. Njoku's a little more divisive, right? I, I think there's some people in the fan base that absolutely love him and others that they read yes. that article and, and they hear the Jim Rome interview and they're like, ah, just get him out of here. So yeah, for whatever reason, Njoku definitely moves that needle. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, one more question here on the Hey Mary Kay edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. And back on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast, Hey Mary Kay edition, Dan Lobby with Mary Kay Cabot. And we're going to talk free agents, one specific free agent, Mary Kay. We're going to talk kind of a complicated guy when it comes to the Browns, Richard Sherman. And I actually have a question for you off this once we, we kind of kick this around a little bit. I'm going to steal it from a radio interview. I did this over the weekend. But first of all, Richard Sherman, look, the guy can still play. He's a veteran. He's a big corner, which the Browns don't really have. And there's, look, CJ McCollum is recruiting him on Twitter, played under Joe Woods, had some things to say about the Browns when they chose Kevin Stefanski over Robert Sala. Mm -hmm. Didn't shake Baker Mayfield's hand that one game. Still, Richard Sherman, is he a guy that you would be interested in on the Cleveland Browns? You know, I actually would for a number of reasons. First of all, he's, he's very close with Joe Woods. And if Joe Woods wants him and thinks he can still play and be sort of an enforcer back there in his secondary, you and I have talked about this, Dan, you kind of need that guy, right? I mean, he brings a lot of, uh, a lot of fire, a lot of energy. He be- he's a five-time pro bowler. Now, again, he's 33 years old, or he will be 33 years old before the 2021 season begins. But the thing with, um, with Richard Sherman is that he can carry the message for, for Joe Woods. He knows how Joe Woods wants things done. And, you know, I remember back in the day, even Bill Belichick used to bring in guys like that, Carl Banks, Pepper Johnson, that would carry the banner for you, set the tone and be the guy that makes sure that everybody does everything on defense the way that you want it done. He is a larger than life presence, Richard Sherman is. We all know that. Uh, so he would be a dominant force in the locker room and a maybe dominant force on, on the football field too. You know, I, I, you, you never really know how much a guy has left once they start to get up into their early thirties when they're at certain positions. Uh, and I haven't looked at the analytics for cornerbacks yet. Maybe you have, but I've got PFF pulled up here. I've got okay. his, some of his PFF numbers pulled up. Okay. Uh, you, you can go ahead and finish your point here. I, I would be interested because of the Joe Woods connection and because he, he can get it done the Joe Woods way and the Robert Sala way, the way that those guys like things done. And I always think it's good for a defensive coordinator to have one of their guys like that, that can show the way. And he might just be good for the young defensive backs. Like you said, it's very controversial. He has that little bit of history with not shaking Baker Mayfield's hand and then, or saying that Baker Mayfield didn't shake their hand and then having to come back and backtrack and say, oh no, that wasn't true, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's what it was. Right, I mean, that was different. And as you mentioned, uh, he went to bat for Robert, Robert Sala when Robert didn't get the job. But I don't think he was dissing Kevin Stefanski as much as he was taking up for Robert Sala. So I don't think that's a deal breaker. I like what he brings to the table in terms of, you know, I remember I've talked to a few people about Baker Mayfield and why he was a good fit for Cleveland. 
And a, a couple people said to me, Cleveland needed somebody that had that fire, that had that attitude, that had that spunk to get Cleveland, to pull Cleveland up out of the doldrums and out of the losing culture that they, they're in. They didn't need somebody with sort of a, maybe a Sam Darnold type of personality at that time, right? Like I've had, you know, Hugh, even Hugh Jackson was one of them that said, we needed a Baker Mayfield. And John Dorsey felt that way too. They yep. needed that kind of a guy. Well, that's the kind of guy that Richard Sherman is from a defensive standpoint, right? They're similar in some ways. I mean, nobody's going to mess with Richard Sherman. I mean, he's going to say what he wants. He's going to do what he wants. And, you know, you, you just aren't, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to win that battle with him. And maybe the defense needs a guy like that. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that you have a coach who has coached him before and kind of knows what it's like to coach Richard Sherman, he's not going to fall in line with the Kevin Stefanski don't say anything mantra here because he is going to be 33 years old so he doesn't really care I do think having that attitude helps and look so he had the calf strain this year and he missed a bunch of time but his numbers this year were pretty good a 69.6 rating when targeted last year he was really good a 45.3 rating when targeted PFF gave him a 90.5 coverage grade in 2019 I remember that injury this year happened in the first game so he comes back like week 12, I think it was, for the 49ers. You know, they're playing in Arizona. They're not even playing in their home stadium anymore. He's coming back off a, a calf strain. Who knows if he was 100% at the time. That's really hard to do, especially in a year when you didn't have a full ramp up to the season anyway. So he plays one game and then misses a bunch after that. So it's kind of hard to judge this year based on anything. He got a 67-2 coverage grade this year from PFF. But this is still a guy, and then the year before that, the year before that he struggled in San Francisco, a 105 rating against him. They gave him a 68.1 rating. But he's not coming here to be your number one corner. You already have a number one corner. He fits well with Denzel Ward because of the size. He's bigger. And again, yeah, that attitude, I like it. This defense needs a little swagger. You know, Denzel's not really a – he doesn't really bring that. He kind of just shows up and does his job. Miles Miles plays with an edge, but it's not – you know, he's not that guy that he's just, he's not Richard Sherman, I guess is, is what I'm saying. So I wouldn't be opposed to it. No. And here, here's the other thing. And, and you're so right about that. They don't have uh, maybe sort of that nasty, you know, that guy with the nasty sort of mean edge to him a little bit that like, he doesn't care if he says something, uh, if he makes something up about it. I mean, and not, you don't want <laughs> people to go around doing stuff like that all the time, but he's got that edge to him. I mean, he has got that fiery, fiery edged him. And remember when we would look at Baltimore Ravens, they had guys like, I mean, it was like the Ray Lewis type of person that, you know, just is larger than life in some ways. And the other thing that would be good about him is the fact that his market value, according to spot rack is about $7 million for one season. I think that would be worth it. I really 100% think that would be worth it. We've talked about this many times before. The, the Browns don't 100% know exactly what's going on with Greedy Williams, right? I mean, they hope he's coming back from this shoulder injury. Everybody talks about it like he's going to be 100% fine for next year. But the reality is they don't know. They don't know until he gets out there and starts playing, if he can even start playing at the beginning of the year. 
I mean, that's the expectation. That's what they're telling us is going to happen. But this would be an insurance policy. Now they have Terrence Mitchell too, but you can't have enough good cornerbacks. You just can't, especially because as we've talked about before, Denzel Ward always has some kind of an injury that takes him off the field for four or five games. I mean, you just kind of have to say, okay, he's going to miss four or five games. So you plug Richard Sherman in there. I would go ahead and do this. I think this would be money well spent. And you'd also be on one of those one-year contracts. You could possibly end up with a compensatory pick somewhere down the road, depending on what happens after that. I think that's important too. The, the one or two-year deal, I think, is really important in this situation. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. We're going to talk about some of the Browns' in-house free agents. And I've been thinking about the cornerback situation, Terrence Mitchell and all of that stuff a little bit today. So we're, we're going to get into that a little later this week. But I think the one to two year deal stuff is kind of a key to that. Mm-hmm. And the thing with a guy like Richard Sherman, you just got to make sure you're not signing the name. You're signing a player who's still pretty good. And it seems like Richard Sherman is still pretty good. And another thing, funny things happen. Yeah. He has all these, the Robert Sala thing, the handshake eight. When a guy shows up in your locker room and can help you win. It's funny how fast a lot of that stuff gets forgotten. Yeah. And I would have to think that Joe Woods loves the guy, right? I mean, if he was that tight with Robert, and I know he was that tight with Robert, Richard Sherman was because I covered uh, the Super Bowl that year and, you know, listened to Richard, you know, talk about him at the Super Bowl and how much he loved Robert. And those guys, you know, I mean, Joe Woods was his defensive backs coach. I mean, those guys are tight. So I would have to think that Joe Woods loves him. I think it makes sense from a talent standpoint and a money standpoint, because I would think I'm willing to bet that Joe would love to have him on the team. Okay. I'm going to throw this question at you here before we go. I'm stealing this from a a radio interview I did over the weekend. I went on a show with Jonathan Peterlin on 92.3 and he threw this question at me. I thought it was interesting. So I'm going to steal it from him. Mm -hmm. You have a choice trade for JJ Watt or sign Richard Sherman, which would you do? Oh, wow. Oh my God. I I told you it was good. That's why I stole it. That is good. That's really good. Darn it. I would love to have both of them, to be honest with you. (laughs) So if I had to pick one, if I had to pick one, hmm, I think I'd go with J.J. Watt. Okay. I think I'd go with J.J. Watt. And the reason why I say that is because I think Richard Sherman is going to be a tremendous luxury. I think you can sign Terrence Mitchell and then you've got Greedy and you've got Denzel I don't know that you can find another pass rusher that would be as good as JJ. Now he, I think he needs a change of scenery and I think he needs to have way more sack production than he did last year, which was only five sacks. But I still think that he might be able to, to give you what you need and what you were able to get from Olivier Vernon this year. JJ Watt could probably provide that on that side. And he also still brings that fire and that, you know, that, you know, go out there and, you know, bring that energy and that sense of urgency and that setting the tone and that leadership. So I I think I might go that route. So I went Sherman. Okay. Because I think you can find, I think you'll be able to find another productive edge rusher, Mm -hmm. whether it's in free agency or via a trade for, for somebody else or even in the draft, we'll see how that all kind of plays out. Right. I think you can find that other productive edge rusher, but if you think Richard Sherman can be that number two corner, yeah, I think that's really important. 
And so I, I picked Sherman, but I think there's a really good case to be made for both. You made the case for JJ Watt. It's perfectly reasonable. And I think you can make a case like I just did for Sherman. I think that number two corner is, I, th- I think number two corner is really important in this defense. And so that's why I went Sherman because I feel like I can address that second edge rusher elsewhere and maybe end up getting somebody younger and better than JJ Watt. Yeah, you're right. And you know, I mean, like you said, you can make a case for either one of those guys. And I grappled with that decision and I'm still not even sure that I love the pick that I made because I could have just as easily said Richard Sherman because of all the reasons that we talked about on this podcast, right? I like the fact that he brings that nasty side. I like the fact that he's so close to Joe Woods. So I I actually, I think that's a great pick. I think that's a great pick that you made and I could definitely see it. So why don't we just uh, say they should sign both of them. They should acquire both. Sign Richard Sherman and trade for JJ Watt. Yeah, they'd have to trade for JJ, which you wouldn't want to be giving up too much for JJ at this point. But I mean, it would be nice to have both of them. We can spend Andrew Barry's money all day long. Right? All his draft capital, all his money. We got it spent, Andrew. If you want to talk to us, we've, we've got it spent for you. Hey, come do some ring chasing in Cleveland. Maybe Cleveland can finally be the, uh, the ring chasing destination for some NFL players. Okay, that'll do it for our Hey Mary Kay edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. We're going to do one of these every single Tuesday as we go along here through the offseason. Got, got to watch the tape on Thursday. We'll have a roundtable for you on Friday. And then, of course, we're going to talk a little free agency and draft on Wednesday. We're going to have Scott Pats go on with us to throw some internal free agents out there and, and figure out what we should do with them. So that's coming up all this week on the Orange and Brown Talk. For Mary Kay, I'm Dan. Thanks for listening, everybody.